welcome back to Outstanding in the Field, a podcast by Perennia highlighting production practices, pest management, and more for field crops in Nova Scotia. I'm your host and Provincial Field Crops Specialist, Caitlin Condon. My guest today is Caitlin McCaver, my colleague and Perennia's Soil Specialist. Caitlin's education and experience has focused on soil chemistry, soil microbiology, and nutrient management, so she's a great person to be here today to discuss nutrient use efficiency. Welcome, Caitlin. Thanks for being here with me. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yes, yeah, it's going to be fun. So our topic today is nutrient use efficiency. And of course, we always want to make sure that we're using and accessing nutrients efficiently. But that seems even more important when input prices are so high, like we're seeing now. So of course, there's a lot of things that impact nutrient use efficiency in the soil. But let's start off by talking about pH. How does pH affect nutrient and fertilizer use efficiency? So basically, to simplify it, different nutrients are available at different pHs. And so for the nutrients that we're kind of most interested in looking at, so NPK, um, even calcium and magnesium, in general, you want higher pHs. And these are going to be what's considered plant available. So Essentially, in order for your crop to take up nutrients in the soil, they have to be in a plant available form. And so this usually means that they're in a soluble form in the soil water. For nitrogen, these plant available forms are ammonium and nitrate. Uh, for phosphorus, it's your orthophosphates. And then for potassium, it's your potassium ion. At different pHs, these nutrients can be released and then into the soil water, which then become available for plant uptake. And so at lower pHs, there's several things that can happen when you apply fertilizer that can make these nutrients less available to your plant. So specifically for nitrogen, if you have decreased pH, and this is for most nutrients, one of the main things that can happen with decreased pH is you're you will often see a decreased root development. This is going to decrease your the root interception of these nutrients, and you're just going to have less surface area essentially for these nutrients to be taken up by the plant. And then also pH is a big limiting factor for microbial activity, which is really important in the nitrogen cycle. So at lower pHs, microbes become less active or certain microbes become less active, particularly your nitrifying bacteria and your resorbial bacteria, which can convert your atmospheric nitrogen into usable forms by the plant. So for phosphorus, it may be a little bit different. So in the same way that at greater pHs, uh, some nutrients become more available at lower pHs, uh, different nutrients become more soluble in the soil and more available. And the big one is aluminum. So at lower pHs, aluminum can become more available. And aluminum okay. can bind to your phosphate and mm. make your phosphate less available. So it basically is instead of your phosphate binding to your soil sites or to your root hairs, it's going to bind to aluminum and not be available to the plant. In addition, um, aluminum can also outcompete potassium for mm. binding sites. So when there are high levels of aluminum, 
your potassium, yeah, might get outcompeted. The same thing can happen to calcium and magnesium, these plant essential nutrients that you want and aluminum or iron or manganese can take up these, uh, these spots, these binding sites and make these plant essential nutrients less available. And so when you're applying fertilizer, if your pH is really low, then the, all these different things are going to play a role and decrease the amount of plant available nutrients. So it would be easy if there was just an ideal pH range that was the same for all of those plant nutrients that we want, but of course that's not the case. So what are the ideal ranges for our heavy hitters, the NPK? It's more dependent on your crop. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't say maybe more dependent, but it's often dependent on your crop. So you need to make sure that, you know, for instance, something like blueberries, you're definitely going to have a different pH range. But for these crops that we're probably looking at in particular, the magic number seems to be Mm 6.5. That's what the analytical labs use for fertility recommendations. But the other magic number I kind of like to use is 5.5. You definitely want your pH quite a bit bigger than that, somewhere in between Mm -hmm. there. But at pHs below 5.5 is where you're really going to see losses in yield or decreased health, because that's where you start getting these other nutrients starting to be soluble and replacing um, your plant essential nutrients. Mm. So for an example, it's an older paper, but it's the Atlantic Soils Need Lime. Mm -hmm. And they give a good representation of what happens when you increase your soil pH for your fertilizer use efficiency. So basically for nitrogen to go from a pH of five to 6.5, it increases your nitrogen use efficiency of your fertilizer by, uh, 44%. So from 53% to 95%. Now this is general, it's going to depend on your field and, and, uh, and other things, but, but yeah, so you can greatly increase that. And, and that's definitely going to save you money in the long run. You're, you're hopefully not going to be using as much fertilizer or, Mm -hmm. and it's also going to prevent over fertilization and, and runoff because your plants are going to be using up those nutrients, because even, even if you're applying the same amount of fertilizer, that fertilizer has to go somewhere. So if it's not being taken up by the plant, then it may be running off or susceptible Mm -hmm. to leaching or volatilization. So you want to get the most out of that fertilizer that you're using. Yeah. So, I mean, if you're looking at your soil test and your pH is down around that 5.5 cutoff, then definitely apply lime. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Lime or any other calcium amendments or, or right uh, to help boost your pH, but then probably like any fertilizer that you put onto that field isn't necessarily going to be very useful. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, you're still going to get at a pH of five, I think nitrogen is about 53%. So you're still going to get about half of that use, yeah. but it's, it's just kind of a waste at that point. Yeah. And when fertilizers so expensive, then like, yeah. yeah, yeah. Soil testing will tell us all sorts of things like pH, like we were just talking about, um, organic matter and the nutrient levels in our soil. 
I mean, your testing also gives um, that important information that we need to properly value it as a resource. When we're facing these high fertilizer prices, would you say that soil testing and manure testing are more important than ever? In general, I think the rule of thumb is every three years, unless you're, you know, you're experiencing some issues that might be soil related, then you might want to get another soil test. The biggest thing with soil sampling is that you want to maintain consistency. So mm -hmm. try and sample at the same time of the year try and sample, make sure you're using kind of the same fields each time you're not changing. If you're only sampled on half an acre, then the next year you're sampling on two acres, like that might change because mm -hmm. with the nature of the soil in Nova Scotia, like even within a field, you can have three different soil types and three different textures that can change your soil test. And then things like, you know, you probably don't want to sample directly after a really heavy rain and one, it kind of makes it a little bit more difficult for them to do the analysis when your soil is really wet. And also you might have like a flush of nutrients out of the system after, after a heavy rain. Mm -hmm. So the other thing when I think about the importance of soil sampling is not only the prices. So the idea is that if you were to soil sample more frequently, then you might have a better idea of the exact nutrient concentrations on your field. And then mm -hmm. that might help you maximize your fertilizer investment. So if you apply fertilizer one year and you don't resample for three years, you might not have a good idea of exactly how much nutrients are still stored in the soil. And also the other thing is if you are in an area or if your soils are susceptible to climate, impacts. Mm. Um, so that can also really affect your, your soil test. I think with the changing climate, if you can sample more, if it's something that's within your budget, I don't think it's um, necessarily ever a bad thing. Right. <laughs> and same with manure. The good thing with manure is that's going to, if you're going to be sampling your manure, that's going to give you a good idea of what you already have. If you have manure storage it may reduce the amount of fertilizer you have to apply. But if you don't get mm -hmm. your manure tested and you just say, okay, I, this is how much I think is in here, right. <laughs> then you might be either over applying or under applying. And that's just going to affect your yield and, and not maximize your economic gain. Yeah. And like, it could be offsetting some of the fertilizer that you, you may not need to apply as much. Volatilization can be a major source of loss for nitrogen in particular. So we often turn to incorporation as being the best way to minimize that. But reducing tillage is also a really important part of a lot of people's soil health uh, strategies. So how can we balance maintaining the nutrients in the soil by incorporating them and, and making sure we're not losing them with that building aspect of a reduced tillage system. When I first kind of tackled this question, I kind of broke down like what I consider the building aspect of a reduced tillage system. So one of the big mm -hmm. things is building that organic matter, which is so important because a large amount of your fertility is, is in that organic matter. Yeah. Um, and then you're also, you know, building up your aggregate stability and you're building up your soil fertility. But 
what often happens in no tillage system is that your nutrients and your organic matter are concentrated in the very top of the soil, Mm -hmm. which happens naturally anyway, you know, your, your nutrients are often a gradient with depth, they decrease, Mm -hmm. but it, it, because you're not incorporating and you're not having that mixing of nutrients. So, so that's uh, becomes an issue, but because often you have higher organic matter and, and residue retention, you can increase the moisture retention, which may actually release more nutrients in that top portion of your soil. But if it's cold and dry, then you're getting a reduced microbial activity. Your soil temperatures are lower due to uh, no-till because you're not getting that mixing. So then you can also see a reduced amount of nutrients being released. So Mm. it becomes a more complicated system. And again, I always kind of like to, I don't think there's a blanket solution. Mm-hmm. I think that a lot of times it's what works for your farm because it also depends on your soil texture and depends on your management and it depends on what you have available. For things like manure, you know, if you can inject manure, that will help decrease volatilization. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so there are different things you can do, like if instead of applying your fertilizer all at once, you know, you can, you can apply it at different times. You can do split applications or different methods. I think the important thing to remember is that you will have to change or modify your application technique and perhaps your application timing. Mm -hmm. If you're thinking of switching to no-till, you may have to like reassess your nutrient management plan and figure out what works best for your, mm-hmm. for your specific farm. Yeah, that's a great answer. I, I, and you're right. Like it's a, it's a whole system thing. It's not just a changing up your tillage method. It's looking how all of that interacts together so that you can be as efficient as possible. And you can kind of think of like, I know a lot of soil scientists think of soil as a living, breathing, like the entire of soil as its own yeah. kind of organism. But if you think of your farm as its kind of own ecosystem, that mm-hmm. if you're switching to no-till and then, you know, you have these consequences of that, some of them are good, some of them are bad, but then yeah. you have to adjust maybe some of your other methods or some of your other management techniques or um, because it, it might be... Um, to kind of compensate for the things you might be losing from no-till. But right. at the same time with no-till, you're hopefully building your organic matter is, right. is the exciting, one of the yeah. exciting things about no-till. And it may not happen right away, but the idea is that with your building your organic matter, you're creating more of these binding sites that are going to hold nutrients in the soil. Right. So it's going to increase your cation exchange capacity and your buffering capacity. So it's going to help your soil not be as susceptible to acidification and build resilience Mm -hmm. in your soil. In addition to, you know, trying to maintain these nutrients for a longer time and increasing your capacity of your soil to hold these nutrients. Right. Okay. So when we're thinking about crop production, like obviously the crop needs so many nutrients for its own growth in season. And people often look at fertilizing in a couple of different approaches. So the build and maintain 
approach and this efficiency approach. Can you explain those different strategies? The thing I, I with both of these approaches is that they kind of, they share the same theory that there's kind of a threshold for the amount of nutrients you need to produce a, either a certain amount of yield or there's these, uh, mm -hmm. or like a good crop if you put it very general. So with the sufficiency threshold or sufficiency method, it's, I would consider it more of like a short-term strategy mm -hmm. where the goal is to put supply just enough to get a good crop yield. So the idea is to have your maximum economic crop yield. So what do I need to get? What do I need to apply in that year to maximize my yield? And then that those nutrients may be removed with the harvest. Mm -hmm. So it's less concerned with building up you know, your soil nutrients and more concerned with just supplying the amount of nutrients that crop needs. So you're kind of catering to your crop, whereas in the build and maintain, you're more catering to your soil. Mm -hmm. So you want to try and increase these nutrients to a critical soil level, It's kind of more of a long-term strategy where you want to reach these critical thresholds in this optimum range and then try and maintain those levels over the year. So even if you're applying more fertilizer than what is critical to your crop, uh, but mm -hmm. the idea is you're going to build those nutrients in the soil. And then perhaps in later years, you may not have to apply as much, or you may have to apply a little less. So right. it's a, so a long-term, it's a long-term yeah. goal. Yeah. And it may be a bit more of an investment upfront. Now, the analogy I use for it is kind of like filling up your tank, uh, your right. car and gas. Yeah. When gas is really high and you know, if I'm traveling from say Tro to Halifax and I know it takes me $20 to get there and back, but gas mm -hmm. prices are really high. I might just put in that $20 that's going to mm -hmm. get me to where I need to go and back. Um, but if gas prices are really low, I'm like, well, maybe I will fill up the tank. And then the next time I have to go somewhere, I don't have to add more or I only have to top it up a bit and I'll right. be saving money. Then from a soils perspective, <laughs> I really like the build and maintain because you're yeah. building your healthy soils. But when fertilizer prices are so high, the sufficiency method may be the more reasonable and it depends on your production, Right. but it's difficult when the prices are so high because it kind of just becomes more of a year by year basis. Right. And, you know, similar to gas prices, you're just hoping you just fill enough and hoping those prices come back down and then you can build up your soil again or fill your tank again. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good way to look at it. The other thing I did kind of want to add about these methods is kind of goes back to the soil testing and soil sampling right with the build and maintain method it's going to give you a little bit more of a cushion you know over time for if there are errors in your soil test report not that right. there really errors but you know if if there were some sampling you know you didn't sample yeah. properly or didn't wasn't able to get out at the right time or right. you know things happen so with the sufficiency method, your application is largely dependent on your soil test. So you need to be really 
careful that you are sampling properly because mm-hmm. if you might be sampling in areas that show that you have higher phosphorus then you actually do like you need to make sure it's a good representation of your field because right. then if you're only applying that kind of minimum amount you need to get your crop yield then you might be um undercompensating or overcompensating so you need to make sure yeah it's just another thing to think about when you're when you're doing your soil sampling yeah no for sure so in a year like this where we know fertilizer prices are high say we're going out we're we're trying to figure out you know where to put the fertilizer where to invest so on those lower fertility fields the ones that need a lot of investment in work would it make more sense to kind of go the sufficiency approach on that for now and then come back to it later when maybe fertilizer prices are a little lower? I would say <laughs> probably. <Yeah. laughs> I don't want to say absolutely because again, I want you want to do what works for you also. Right. On your low fertility fields, you have to kind of think about what your field is capable of. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily, because I think a lot of times I would think, okay, this field has lower fertility. I'm going to invest a lot of time and effort into this field because it's right. not as good as my other fields. But sometimes you have to look at like, okay, if I in- invest a lot of time and effort, is that actually going to pay off? And right. there may be circumstances in that field. Even if you apply all the fertilizer and stuff, you may not actually it's not going to necessarily get you exactly to where you want to be. It may not. Right. So like some fields are always going to be better fields than others. Yeah. 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 Like for instance, if you have a field that is really either drought prone or flood prone, you know, and, and, and you get poor climate conditions that year, do Mm. you want to invest so much time and effort onto that one field when you could make your good fields even better? So I think that's where the sufficiency approach kind of, because it's all about your economic maximum. So you have to think, Mm -hmm. well, what can I get from this field? Let's invest the amount that I can, you kind of have to think about, yeah, what, what can you get from this field? Not necessarily compute, compare all your fields at the same level. So if you're your sufficiency threshold may be different. Now, a lot of times it's dependent, it looks like it's more dependent on the crop, but if you're like, well, when I add this much fertilizer, uh, it's been doing the same as when I added even more fertilizer, even though it's recommending more just because of other field conditions, then you may want to look at that too. So I think, yeah, in that case, the sufficiency method makes sense because you're not adding extra nutrients to build and maintain on a field that's never, ever going to maintain. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Right. I always like to want to encourage people to kind of get to know their soils a little bit more. Like, right. So the soil testing is great, but also you should be looking at your fields, kind of seeing Things like, you know, if you have water pooling in an area you've never seen pool before and just kind of get to know the topography of your field, the Mm -hmm. textures of your field, you know, dig a couple holes, look at the colors and and then you can kind of say like, okay, there's changes like maybe this area has been more affected by compaction or or something like that, that you can kind of visually see like I think it's really important for you to kind of go out and get to know your soils a little bit. 
but yeah and I know a lot of people do <laughs> <laughs> but we could always do it more right yeah <laughs> <laughs> so we talked about manure a little bit earlier but just to kind of bounce back to that what's the importance of properly valuing that manure as a fertility resource and um and we also talked about incorporation and stuff a little bit but uh how can we make the most out of it in terms of method and an application manure is great in so many ways like it it has a lot of advantages especially you know if you have manure on in on your farm and it's very accessible to you like yeah it improves uh, your plant available nutrients. It helps build your organic matter. It can help with your aggregate stability. Um, it can increase like your cation exchange capacity or your buffering capacity of your soil. So the use of manure can help cut down on the amount of fertilizers you have to apply. Mm-hmm. If you get it tested and you know how much is in there, then you know if there's a sufficient amount of nitrogen in your manure, to compensate for how much you need, then Mm -hmm. you may not have to apply nitrogen fertilizer or apply smaller amounts, which is just going to save you money because that's something that you have, often will have on your farm already. Right. So the effectiveness of your manure is gonna depend on a few things. So first is the nutrient content of your manure and that kind of goes back to getting it tested. And then it's also going to depend on Um, the long and short-term availability of the nutrients in your manure. So whether or not these nutrients are going to break down and become plant available in the year that you apply it, or if it's going to be, or if there's going to be a longer term gain. And then also on your application method and your timing of application. If you really want to get the most out of your manure, then you probably want to incorporate it right away as we kind of said earlier so I think in one day you can lose up to like 35 percent of your nitrogen from manure after eight days I think you can lose a lot of it to volatilization right Um, so if you can incorporate it or as we talked in no-till system if you're able to inject it or um, those are that's how you're going to get the most out of the nutrients in your manure Mm -hmm. Um, so so in the spring, basically, like you, you want your manure to break down to release these nutrients. So you want your soil temperatures to be warmer. So you have microbial activity and you, you want to maximize kind of the interaction with your, with your plants so they can uptake more of these nutrients that become available. There are a few things that you have to kind of look out for if you apply in the spring. So if you, especially if you have more clay soils or fine textured soils, and you don't really want to apply right after a heavy rain, just because of compaction and yeah, or just spring in general. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And there are other, so I I know there have been some studies who have applied it in the fall as well. And the thing with the fall is that if the temperatures are cooled enough, the soil temperatures are cooled enough, you're actually going to decrease that microbial activity that's going to break the manure down and the idea is that maybe you are holding on so that it has a longer time to interact and then when those temperatures increase then it's going to release those nutrients but 
if you have temperatures or you're in an area where your temperatures fluctuate a lot, this can Mm -hmm. lead to a lot of leaching because if you have a few warm days and then you're breaking down and you have a lot of like say nitrates available and nothing to take it up, then you're going to run into some, some nitrate leaching. And that's, that's going to be an issue from a nutrient management perspective. And like when, when people are having nutrient management plans done, it's important to look at the timing of the manure application, obviously, but then that also rolls over into future years as well. So depending on the timing, you may get some release right away for the present crop, but then there's going to be a certain amount that's available the next year after that microbial activity and after it's had some some time to become part of the the soil system yeah so it's it's not nece- it's not just an immediate year thing it's there's going to be some credit for the future as well if you had to choose one area to invest in when fertilizer prices are high what would it be and why I think um, as a soil specialist, I'm just going to naturally say your your soil health. But I think, though, with a lot of the stuff we talked about, helping build and maintain your soil health will help increase your fertilizer use efficiency. And in saying that, I'm soil health is kind of a broad thing, but a broad topic. So Mm -hmm. particularly, you know, your pH and, and look, getting your soil sampled and making sure that your fertility is, is where it should be. So essentially, as we had previously mentioned, if your pH is within an adequate range, you're just going to be using your fertilizers way more efficiently. And you're going to be saving money in that respect. Now, you may spend a little bit more money on the front end, helping increase your soil health. So building your organic matter and increasing your pH. But then it kind of comes back to that build and maintain. If you're building and maintaining your soil health, so Mm -hmm. you're building and maintaining your soil fertility, then in the long run, it is going to be, it is going to help save you money. So in addition to increasing your fertilizer use efficiency, you're also just going to hopefully improve your, um, your crop yields. Besides increasing your fertilizer use efficiency, you're also going to be increasing your availability of other nutrients such as calcium and magnesium, and you're going to require less in the future. And so this is going to increase your crop health and your crop yield and your resilience also. So you're building up your soil resilience. And and so it's going to help improve your aggregate stability, which is going to prevent erosion and and other things that you can lose. And you can just kind of, there's, there's so many things that come from improving your soil, but, and so with the fertilizer prices high, it's kind of, a matter of if, if they continue to rise, then mm. you may want to try and invest in, <clears throat> excuse me, try and invest in your soil now, right. because in the long run, you're going to have a better nutrient holding capacity, um, you know, water holding capacity and, yeah. and just kind of increase the efficiency of your practices overall. Yeah. And not be quite so much at the mercy of... <laughs> the rising prices. Yeah. 
when I talk about building resiliency, yeah, you're building resiliency to, you know, climate and you know, changes, but you're also building resiliency to the market too, to price right. for to prices where you have kind of, if you're building up a bit of like a reserve of nutrients, then if the prices increase again, then maybe, okay, this year you, you just use the sufficiency method to get you where you need to go. And right. then in years where prices drop again, then you can help build and maintain your, your soil. No, yeah. I think this has been great. This has been a lot of really good information. Um, and people can always get in touch with you or I, uh, if they want to discuss their particular nutrient management strategy. So these are some, some general points that people can think about. Um, yeah. And, and maybe think about how they can incorporate different strategies into, into their overall management. Thanks for listening to this episode of Outstanding in the Field. Stay tuned for a written summary of the episode coming up in the next edition of the CropLinks newsletter, which you can subscribe to by visiting our website, www.perennia.ca. Subscribe to the podcast to stay up to date on all future episodes. Follow us on social media at NSPerennia. Thanks to Perennia for supporting the podcast and our marketing and communications team, Moira Anderson and Patty Ryan for production and design. 